So, you know, today is a, a very auspicious and exciting day, not only in the life of the church universal as we celebrate the, the joy and the, the wonder and the mystery of the resurrection, but it's an eventful day in the life of this particular church. It's a, a milestone, really, in our, our three-year endeavor at taking a long and in-depth look at the assemblage of Hebrew poetry that makes up the book of Psalms. Remember, it's a book that, uh, like the Bible itself, isn't just one volume. It's a, a collection of five little books inside the Psalms. And so today marks the completion of one-fifth of our journey. So congratulations, you survived. <laughs> uh, but you'll remember, too, that when we started on this trip back in June 23rd of last year, I told you uh, that I have fallen in love more and more with the Psalter over the last couple of years because... You know, the Psalms, unlike any other type of literature in the Bible, uh, just it's incredible. It gives us a book that's written not only by the inspiration of God, but actually written to God as an expression of our worship and our prayer. Uh, it's a book that helps give us voice to those deep places in our hearts and to the whole range of human emotions. Uh, because in it, we're given the language to address God with thanks and with praise, but also with our feelings of isolation and of anguish and of sorrow and despair. Uh, and you know, also I told you when we started as we go along that we're going to see that uh, some of what is in the book of Psalms is pretty deep and it's pretty raw. Uh, there's joy and anger, there's despair, there's celebration, there's frustration and triumph, uh, and that we're going to encounter a lot of emotions on display. Some of them praising God, and some of them questioning God, but all of them directing us to Him. Uh, and last but not least, the other reason that I told you at the beginning that we need to be mining the depths of the Psalms is because the Psalms are full of Christ. You know, the, the great reformer Martin Luther, uh, in his commentary on Psalms, wrote, The Psalms ought to be a precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this. It promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly, and it pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom, that it might be well called a little Bible. Because, you know, the Psalms, they, they not only explicitly prophesy the coming uh, of Christ, but the message of the Psalms always pulls our soul to him and to his great saving work. And, and that's what we're going to actually see today in Psalm 41, uh, a psalm that pulls all of those elements together into a, a beautiful, if horrible, picture of Christ's experience of Holy Week and also, though, of his triumph at the empty tomb that uh, we're celebrating today. And so if you're reading along, if you have your Bible with you, as I encourage you always to do, we're going to be reading Psalm 41, which is superscribed to the choir master, a psalm of David. And the psalmist writes, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemy says of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. 
All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him, and he will not rise from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You know, I started out by telling you that... uh, of Martin Luther's contention that all of the Psalms explicitly prophesy the coming of Christ and of his great saving work. And, you know, he wasn't alone in, in that assessment, particularly of, of today's Psalm, of Psalm 41, uh, because in his introduction of Psalm 41, the pastor and scholar and Calvinist theologian John Gill uh, wrote, he said, "In this Psalm is a prophecy concerning the betrayal of Christ into the hand of his enemies. And this is certain since it's cited and applied by our Lord himself in John 13 at the scene of the Last Supper. Can't get any better attribution than that, right? Now, if you were with us Thursday night, you'll remember the scene from John 13 uh, where John tells us during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but Scripture will be fulfilled. And now this is where Jesus is going to quote directly from Psalm 41. And so he says, Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And he said, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am He. And you know, when, in reading through this, what I think is so amazing about Jesus quoting this line from the psalm is that, you know, neither the, the disciples nor anyone else for that matter would ever really believe that Jesus was who He said He was just because He was betrayed by a friend. Anybody ever been betrayed by a friend? Right? I mean, that, that, that's happened hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of times to leaders, none of whom were the Messiah or even close. No, there's more to it than that that I want to show you because for a rabbi, for a teacher in Jesus' day, and even now it was and is typical that in quoting just a verse or two out of Scripture to be implying the whole passage, the whole total, especially when it comes to biblical poetry like the Psalms. And we kind of even have that in our own culture. Like, uh, you know, for instance, if you're sharing a problem that you have with somebody that doesn't really take your issue all that seriously, they may look at you and say, well, que sera, sera. Right? But you already know what the next line is, right? Right. Uh, if the kids come home and, and maybe say somebody at school called them a bad name, we might say, well, sticks and stones. Right? But they, they know the rest, even if we don't say it, right? What's the, what's the rest? Yeah. 
Yeah, sticks and stones will break your bones. Or if I say God is good, you already know the appropriate reply is all the time, right? And in the same way, even though Jesus only quotes a bit of Psalm 41, he only quoted verse 9, that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It implies all the rest as well. And so I want you to listen to it again with that context as, as the whole together. So Psalm 41, verse 8. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Do you see, see there how that tiny little line about Christ's betrayal and the one about the sinful world's hope that when they finally had Jesus dead that he would hopefully stay that way? Uh, not only physically, but in his movements, popularity. But you see how all of that is almost completely swallowed up and surrounded by the promise of his victory and of his vindication. And I don't know about you, but that's a great comfort for me. Uh, and really for all who love our Christ especially in the face of the world's ridicule and rejection of our risen Lord. Because, you know, right from the very beginning, right from the day it happened until now, people have tried to deny the truth of the resurrection. Right? Nobody, nobody believed in the words of Psalm 41 that Christ would rise again from where he lies. And the world tries to tell us uh, that our faith is just a fairy tale. They try to tell us that Easter is just about colored eggs and, and empty promises, but... You know, in thinking about it, our unbelieving critics are actually half right. Easter is not about colored eggs, but it is about empty promises. Three of them, in fact. And they are the promises of the empty cross, the empty burial shroud, and an empty tomb on Easter morning, on the Lord's Day. Because, you know, the, the world is always talking about, thank God it's Friday, uh, always singing that song, you know, working for the weekend. But brothers and sisters, this is Sunday. And we are an Easter people. And I think uh, if you know him, Dr. Tony Campolo captured that idea a few years back as part of a message that he preached. And I don't have his, his deep resonating voice, but I think this clip of the word says it for uh, themselves. He wrote, in the world today it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It was Friday and my Lord is dead on a tree, but that's Friday and Sunday's coming. On Friday, Mary's crying her eyes out. The disciples are running in every direction like sheep without a shepherd. But that's Friday. And Sunday's coming. Friday, some are looking at the world and saying, All things have been, and so they shall be. You can't change the world. No one can change this world. But they didn't know that it was only Friday. And Sunday's coming. Friday, the forces that oppress the poor and keep people down, the forces that destroy people, the forces in control of the now, they don't know it's only Friday, but Sunday's coming. Friday people are saying darkness is going to rule the world, sadness is going to be everywhere, but they don't know it's only Friday, but Sunday's coming. Even though this world is as rotten as it is right now, we know it's only Friday, but Sunday is coming. And brothers and sisters, it's here. It's today. Because the Gospel of Matthew tells us early on Sunday morning 
as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like the sun, and his clothing was as white as the snow. And the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. And then the angel spoke to the women, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He said, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said he would. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there. Remember what I've told you. And the women ran quickly from the tomb and they were frightened but also filled with great joy and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and he greeted them and they ran to him and grasped his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. So the women do as the angels instructed and on the way, you know, the, the risen Lord stops and greets them and they worship him, but he quickly sends them on their way again and they're still so scared and, and happy and confused. They evidently think that Jesus maybe had only visited them in spirit because when they get to the disciples, the apostle John tells us in chapter 20 that when she, when Mary, ran, found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, she said, they've taken the body of the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside, and he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. And then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So you have to picture this. When, when Peter and John heard from Mary Magdalene that the body of Jesus that had been placed in the sepulcher that Friday afternoon was no longer there, uh, and of her conclusion that maybe enemies had taken it away, instantly the two apostles run for the sepulcher, with John outrunning Peter and getting there first. And I absolutely love the fact that John couldn't resist slipping in that little dig, right, right here in the text, right? That little part about him getting there first, because, you know, John was pretty old when he wrote this, probably about 50 or 60 years after the resurrection, and I'm sure there was a smile on his face as he wrote it. He probably teased Peter about it over the years, you know, the way competitive guys will do that good-naturedly with each other. But, you know, I think, too, that it adds to the humanity and the reality of the story. And it also shows that to John, to our eyewitness of today's events, the details matter, especially when it comes to the tomb. And when Peter and John go in, they don't see the body of Jesus, but they did see the grave clothes. And they saw them in a certain order. It says uh, uh, the linen cloths lying in one spot and the napkin for the head being in a place by itself. And these empty grave clothes and the way they were arranged had a huge impression on John. He saw and believed, but we have to ask ourselves, what did they cause John to believe? Was it the story that Mary told of Jesus' body not being there that they believed? 
But, you know, that wouldn't really make sense because he didn't have to notice the, the linen to know that Jesus' body was gone. So what would the arrangement of the grave clothes have to do with his seeing them and believing in the resurrection? Because that's a pretty big leap from one to the other, isn't it? When John wrote that he saw the linen clothes lying, the word he used doesn't refer to something just discarded, uh, but rather the word he used points to the fact that they were lying precisely, that the grave clothes were lying exactly in the position that the body had occupied, literally. And so you have to picture the scene. You, you've got these linen wrappings that he's talking about are, are kind of on the order of wide bandages we would use to wrap up an injured arm or an injured leg. Uh, but with the Jewish burial, those wrappings would start at the feet and go all the way up to the neck. They didn't wrap the face or the head, but instead tied a square cloth around, uh, and that would be the method they would have used to prepare Jesus' body. In fact, John had actually written about that important point earlier in his gospel. He wrote in John chapter 19 that afterwards, after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down the body of Jesus. And when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. And he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointments made from myrrh and aloes. And following Jewish burial customs, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen. So these two men pour pounds and, and pounds and pounds of spiced ointment into the wrappings that enveloped the body of Jesus. And, and these liquid spices would dry and, and harden, and they'd cause those cloth wrappings to stick together and become almost like a cocoon around the body of Jesus, following its contours and, and sealing the bandages and, and trapping in the odors and fluids of a potentially decomposing body. That's all they could do because Jewish burial customs forbid uh, the practice of embalming or, or mummifying the dead like the Egyptians. So with that in mind, humanly speaking, the, the only way a body could ever be removed from a shell like that would be by cutting the cloth and, uh, from end to end and, and laying it back on each side so the body could be pulled out from the wrappings, as if a grave robber would ever stop to take all that trouble, right? So when Jesus' disciples saw the linen clothes lying uh, uncut, undisturbed, lying just as they had been, but now empty, hollow. It convinced them beyond any doubt that Christ's body had miraculously, supernaturally, divinely removed itself and that it had, as one commentator said, emerged right through the grave clothes, disappearing from within its resin, encrusted knots and folds undisturbed. And they now serve as silent memorials, those empty grave clothes still clutching at a vanished body leaving testimony to the presence and the power of Almighty God. Wow. But you know, unbelievably, not everyone believed. In fact, the truth is Jesus' enemies wanted not to believe. And so the Jewish leaders and the Romans together made up a lie. The lie that the disciples stole the body. And these are the same folks that Christ warned about when he had David write in Psalm 41, my enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. And when he goes out to tell it abroad, all who hate me whisper together about me and they imagine the worst for me. But you know, that's okay. 
Let them tell their stories. Because, you know, Jesus really did die. And his body it really is gone. But the resurrection proves that that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus' grave clothes and his empty tomb are there too for us to witness. Empty of Jesus' body, but full of the promises of God. Full of hope for you and for me and for all who will repent and believe the gospel. And those promises of the empty cross and the empty shroud and the empty tomb are promises that you and I can stand here today forgiven. Because, you know, the world says if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But the truth of the matter is our God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. God is different. God is different because instead of promises full of emptiness on Easter, God gave us something empty but full of promise. In an empty cross and an empty shroud and an empty tomb to prove that our dreaded enemies of sin and of death can't threaten us any longer. Because Jesus Christ lives. And because he lives, we can pray in the words of Psalm 41 today, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemies of death and hell, they're not going to shout over me in victory, but you have upheld me because of Christ my integrity. And you have set us in your presence forever and ever, for everlasting and everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray together.